Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, listeners. What I've had my mind on lately is the flabbergasting reality to me and to those around me that such people can actually exist who desire the destruction of others around them. In culture in general, we have common terms for such people. Narcissists is one of them. Um, We may call them massive egotists, uh, something to that effect. But the main point is that they are people who seem to be dedicated to the manipulation, the abuse, and ultimate destruction of people around them. And the fact that we can be so flabbergasted by the very fact that they can even exist is a good sign in and of itself. Those who feel that staggering feeling at looking at such a reality, disbelieving that it can even be a reality, which is quite understandable, shows that in fact they still, such people feeling this staggering feeling, still have a conscience. They still at least have a voice within them that instructs them when they have done something bad, when they have hurt someone, at least occasionally. And of course, one of the reasons why these sorts of topics come up from time to time is when good people, or at least people who are becoming somewhat better, uh, find that they are in a narcissistic relationship. Or when we consider the mainstream media or politicians and how often they seem to not just be willing, but perhaps even take a sort of delight in in controlling and even destroying the lives of people through spreading lies, through spreading propaganda, whatever it might be. Now, as far as these people themselves are concerned, I have sympathy. More often than not, if not in every case in general, such people probably grew up in extremely abusive situations. They had their souls gradually scooped out bit by bit until there was almost nothing left. And as a result, some of them grew up to be adults who don't really feel like they have anything within them, so the only way that they can feel any sort of contentment, satisfaction, any minuscule portion of peace is if they control everything around them and never do anything about themselves. They have to make sure that the environment around them is exactly the way they want it. And if it isn't, then they feel the very emptiness of themselves creeping up on them again. Or maybe they are people who actually do, actually have found a sort of delight in destroying the lives of other people. And this is the only thing that, again, can fill them with any sort of pleasure, any sort of contentment. Because, again, if they, their very selves, their very natures have been scooped out from within them as children... Either you're going to take the desperate approach or you're going to take the confident approach to exerting your soullessness on the world around you. Now, I don't mean to say that such people don't actually have a soul, but they act like it. If they have a conscience at all, and the Bible does in fact have 
text on this very idea, a seared conscience is what it calls them. Calls them. Even if they have a conscience at all, it is so weak and so quiet within them at this point that it barely even gives them a pinprick of a feeling. Now, what I have been contemplating about this reality brings me to a continuation of an earlier podcast that I called Rules or Relationships. What I'm calling this one is Control or Love. See, such people, the narcissists, the um, life destroyers, the conscienceless, are not capable of love. Now, why do I say that? Well, what does love require? What does it take? And connected to it, what does a relationship actually mean? If we are to love, it is necessary, of course, that we are in relationship with another being. We must have an other to love, to be in relationship with. And the entire premise of narcissists, abusers, and so on, is that they will not allow the people around them to be themselves wherever it goes against their desires. Anytime something upsetting occurs around them as a result of somebody else's choices, preferences, or whatever, they have to stymie it, they have to control it, they have to stop it. Now, I'm all for having conversations and correcting one another when actual wrong has been committed, sin, vice, addiction, whatever it might be. But this is not what I'm talking about. I am talking about simply exerting your own preferences, things that I've talked about many times in this podcast before, making decisions out of your own sense of creativity or free thought. Whenever that goes against the even just... um, immature persons and when it yeah when it goes against their preferences they will try to shut you down when it go and when you're dealing with a narcissist it can be basically anything and everything they effectively try to do the same thing to those around them especially those closest to them as what was done to them as children and the curse goes from generation to generation as i've also talked about in the past Anyways, so what I'm getting at is that the very fact that they try so hard to control the people around them, either in certain choice areas where they find they get offended or triggered, or in basically all areas of individuality around them, they are undoing the very possibility of love because they are attempting at least to undo the individuality, the very soul of the people around them. It could even be argued, perhaps, that people in this sort of mode are offended by the individualities of other people around them because they know deep down that they have none for themselves. So they're jealous, and they want to undo it. It makes them angry to see people being creative, being free, having their own preferences and exerting them. So they must shut it down, rather than dealing with the black desires of their own hearts. Let's look at this in other similar examples. How is it that a teacher should ideally teach their students? Well, 
in modern day, and this is one of the reasons why so many schools are absolutely terrible and soul-crushing, they certainly should not force the students to think whatever they happen to think. They should not force them to simply commit to a particular orthodoxy, to parrot whatever they say, whatever the orthodoxy says, whatever the going consensus is. There should be allowances for questions, for creativity, for interest, for skepticism. See, what a teacher should be wanting to create is free thinkers, obviously. But it is often thought in modern day that people who can simply parrot the great philosophers or the science or the facts as we know them or etc., 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 that is what makes people smart. No, those are not thinkers. Those are merely, merely parrots of the orthodoxy. And it's absolutely ugly. They are not creating good students and then eventually good experts. They are creating carbon copies. If the students are never allowed to think their own thoughts, to have their own questions, then they are not, by definition, becoming original. They are not, by definition, thinking. All they have to do is memorize. All they have to do is know the orthodoxy. This affects religious organizations quite severely. And yes, of course, as always, including Christianity. Another example, what should a parent want to do ideally with their child? Well, certainly not. Telling them everything they can and cannot do to the nth detail, even when it has nothing to do with morality or vice or whatever. Or even cultural rules. It's just house rules. It's this or that. You cannot go here. You cannot do this at this time. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot. And why not? Because I said so. Because I'm your parent. Why doesn't a parent want to do that sort of thing? Do you want to create a carbon copy of yourself, or do you want to create a free and individual adult who will be capable of going on without you by the time you are gone, dead and gone, and think for themselves, live for themselves, be creative, be innovative, be bold? Think about it. If you force the child to follow all of your edicts and also to think only the things that you want them to think, if they actually submit to that, and unfortunately some do, how are they going to understand how to exist without you? You have made sure that they are absolutely dependent on your every rule, your every edict, your every orthodox thought, orthodox to you, and so on. You have made them reliant upon you. So what happens when you're not there? You have not created, you have not helped to generate a free adult soul. You've generated an automaton. You've generated a dependent being. You've generated, if you will, a leech. Isn't that horrible? So in other words, in order to do what you should do, as a parent, you must insist on them not being you. No carbon copy. Not even insisting that they think the way that you do. Now, hopefully, of course, if you do well, 
and you are truly loving towards them, they will choose to continue being in relationship with you until they until you go your way. But that aside, in order to love them, in order to do that which is to their good, and again, my definition, aiming towards the good to the best of your ability, putting it a little bit shorter than I often do, a little bit. In order for you to do that, you must insist that they are individual. You must insist that they grow to have their own souls, their own thoughts, and so on. Or in an organization, changing the example. Again, it's one of the reasons why organizations have become so often so absolutely soul-crushing, because they are all about following a particular set of rules. People are not allowed to be innovative, to be creative, to have their own ideas, to try to change things up and maybe even improve things. All they have to do really is learn this set of rules, learn that you do this at this time of day and you stock that at this time of day and you have to use this software and on and on and on it goes. And people are not allowed to be individuals. It is no wonder that so many people in the modern factory working kinds of days that we have think of themselves as merely a cog in a machine. Why? Because they just look like everybody else. They're doing all the same things that everybody else does. They answer the phone and have to say exactly the same words every time. They're hardly even allowed to change it up. Is that a way for employers to generate good employees? No, it's a way to generate extremely bored employees who are resentful of their jobs, bored again out of their wits to the point that they want to go. Why is there going to be any energy in customer service towards your customers if the employees feel that their very individuality is being ground down to a nub by this massive rules-oriented corporation? In order to have individuals that we are in relationship with, we have to insist on not controlling them. The two are mutually exclusive. If you refuse to control another person, and again, this is different than having conversations about things that are perhaps offensive or at least just disagreeable, um, things that everybody has to work on in their relationships with one another that's fine but if you go do not go beyond that if you refuse to manipulate to control to abuse to try to turn those around you into exactly what you want them to be then they will actually be an individual and they can stay that way in relationship with you and it's not just an insult to the other person it's also an insult to you if you insist on controlling the other person for what you are really saying is that having chosen this person to be in relationship with, you are nevertheless dissatisfied with who they are. It's like shopping for a car for months and months and looking for every individual little customization that you can possibly find. And finally you find every detail that you desire and you purchase the car. And as soon as you get it home, all you're doing is complaining about this feature and that feature and the next feature. You insult yourself for having chosen that car. 
in the same way, if you have chosen this organization, if you have chosen to be a te- this teacher, if you have chosen this person to be in relationship with as friend or a spouse, and the first thing you start doing, or at least very quickly, you start just complaining about their individual attributes. Yes, you, ma- you don't just insult them, you abuse them, you also insult yourself. How are you so bad at choosing somebody who you are compatible with, who makes for a good friend or spouse or whatever? Control and love are on totally opposite points. They cannot be combined. And of course, looking at this through the lens of theology, this is one of the cruxes of the question of determinism versus free will. Think about it. Anytime we argue that God is deterministic, we are essentially positing that God cannot love beings, human beings, unless the most ultimate decisions that we can make are controlled by him. He has to determine where we will go, what we will do, if we will choose him or not choose him, even in order for him to love us. That is the argument. It makes God out to be massively petty. On our own level, what do immature, irresponsible, and narcissistic people do when they are caught guilty? They blame. They shift the guilt. Oh, it was because of how I was brought up. Oh, it's because of culture. Oh, it's because of my church. Oh, it's because of my organization. Oh, it's because of my circumstances. Whatever. My children, my wife, my husband. What are they doing? They're turning deterministic. I didn't really have a choice in this matter. It was because of these circumstances or this person or this relationship. The moment they are caught with the possibility of grasping for maturity, in their immaturity, they turn to determinism. They refuse to own their own responsibilities. If, on the other hand, you choose to own your responsibilities, then you are insisting on yourself being an individual. If you constantly blame shift, You insist on having no ultimate control over yourself. You insist on not having soul, not having conscience. If you will accept responsibility where it's due, then you are insisting that you do have soul and conscience. See, this even applies, in a manner of speaking, to yourself. To be deterministic is not even to love yourself properly. So the question we ultimately all have to face when it comes to the matter of love is, are we going to allow fear to have even one iota, one molecule of room in our relationships? Why do I say fear? Because the moment fear comes into the relationship, and I'm not talking about being afraid of actual risks and dangers and that sort of a thing. That is another matter. 
I'm talking about the fear that another person might actually have their own opinion. The fear that another person might have an evaluation, a judgment, a critique of you. Or that you might have a critique or a judgment to bring to them and you're wondering how they will respond to it or react. If you are willing to settle with any level of fear in your relationships, you are settling for a level of necessary control. Because we cannot live in constant fear, so we have to try to manage it. If there are borders and barriers that we cannot cross or the other person in the relationship cannot cross, it has to be maintained or controlled. And in that area of the relationship, love ceases to exist. You might have some genuine love in other areas, but you are allowing for at least a few corners and at the extreme, nothing whatsoever that is not dominated by fear and control. To have genuine love in a relationship is the maximum form of bravery. We must boldly go to where we have no preconceived notion of what might happen, what the other person might say, what they might actually think. And I don't mean to imply that it's always a strenuous courage going into the dark unknown. No, as a matter of fact, it is a great deal more fun because we can go with excited curiosity into each interaction with those that we love. And it does also carry with it, by the way, the risk that, yes, if we are willing to truly be ourselves and to allow other people to truly be themselves, to the best of our ability, we're going to face rejection. And we're going to have to reject others on this basis. But that brings us back to the first question. Are we willing to allow even a single grain of fear into our relationships? If you do, that is where your love stops. So that's all I had for today. Talk to you next time.